0: Good morning. Oh, sorry. Uh, This morning I'm reading Song of Songs 6. Others, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? She. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of the spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. He, you are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like flock of ooze that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? She. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kingsmen, a prince. Others. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we might look upon you, he. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon the dance before two armies? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jasmine. Church, if you have not yet, please open up to Song of Songs, chapter 6. My name is Jason, I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and I am proud of you. (laughs) I am proud of you because you're still here. Um, We have been in the Song of Songs now for five weeks, this will be the sixth, Um, and I was speaking with a mentor of mine uh, a couple weeks ago. I told him what uh, book of the Bible we were in the middle of teaching. And he said, uh, I am not brave enough to do that. And I immediately just said, I don't think any of us are. (laughs) Um, And I've just really been encouraged by the questions, the pushback, the conversation. The uh, trust in the Lord to walk through something like this has been uh, laborious, I'm sure. I feel emotionally and intellectually exhausted, to be completely honest uh, with you. And yet the Lord is meeting us in the middle of this, and I think reaping a kind of harvest that there's gonna be a before and after. There was a before we went through Song of Songs at church in the square, and then there was an after. And so it's because of that, because of I think what the Lord is doing among us that I am encouraged to press on to the last three chapters. Um, One of the things that I think that we notice when we pay attention to sort of our, our cultural moment is that marriage seems less and less central. Uh, To individuals or our community at large. And I think few people desire to outright reject the institution, but we seem pretty committed to finding alternatives. Uh, In last week's issue of New York Magazine, journalist uh, Allison Davis featured the story of a polycule. Uh, Davis explains that Sarah Nick Anna and Alex are individuals who, and I quote, each have partners and maintain concurrent romantic and intimate relationships, not just as a side of casual sex partners, though they can have those too. They are part of the same friend group and sometimes wind up at the same parties and have semi-regular one-on-one hangs. So in principle, what Davis is communicating here is that this polycule, this group who is practicing polyamory is clear, but it's casual. The motivation for such an open-style relationship, at least for this group, that I think we need to be clear, is not about eliminating all boundaries. Rather, instead, Nick, who seems like the leader of the bunch, as best as I could tell from the article, uh, is about designing the bounds, he says, of what we want in our relationship and what we're comfortable with. In other words, traditional monogamy is just way too constricting, and so we find something that meets our needs and our desires. Others, I think in our particular society, in our our moment here, are less romantically or sexually adventurous, if you will, but they still desire intimacy outside of the perceived norms of the centrality of marriage. And in her forthcoming book, I think it's coming out next month, The Other Significant Others, uh, Raina Cohen uh, inspires sort of a a reimagination, if you will, of what friendship looks like. Uh, This past week, she was on the Ezra Klein podcast and Cohen spoke about this oft-referenced fact that half of marriages end in divorce in our society, but also how statistically, something I wasn't aware of, but because of death and marrying later in life, most married people, if their marriage, if they, even if their marriage does not end in divorce, they only are married for about 30 years. And so she asked the question, what do we do with all of this time when we desire meaningful intimacy and meaningful relationships, when the one that we perceive to be the most meaningful we only have for about a third of our life? And so, last week we explored, if you remember, from chapter 5, the value of friendship that we see throughout the scriptures. That marriage is not meant to be, nor should it be, the only place where we find intimacy. Remember, there's this third party throughout the entire Song of Songs who keeps showing up, and maybe we get, like, comfortable as about two people, and all of a sudden they chime in, and they're like, we like this too, and you're like, oh, right, there's a whole group of friends that are hanging out who are kind of excited about this, and that's a meaningful, like, picture of friendship and of community. But marriage, while it isn't supreme, the poem is making clear that marriage is powerful. So what do we do? What do we do with this duality, that marriage is not meant to be ultimate, but it's also not obsolete? What is the common ground that the Scriptures speak of, that we don't simply do away with the institution because of boundaries that we want to set on relationships, but it's also not ultimate, as really the church has often made it, that this is God's reward for mature Christians, right? How do we put it in its proper place, Well, marriage is the Bible's primary illustration of the gospel. When we step back, the 30,000-foot view, if you will, it communicates, perhaps most consistently, God's relationship with humanity through this more poetic language from beginning to end. See, from the Garden of Eden through Israel's history to the cross, to the church, on into the age to come, marriage is the common stroke, if you will, that is painting the picture of the worth and beauty of God. In other words, we could say that marriage is a primary way that God reveals his glory. That's the purpose of marriage. Marriage is meant to reveal God's glory in a unique and a particular kind of way. See, when marriage is rightly embraced and seen as revealing God's glory, then it doesn't become too important. It's always pointing to someone else, but it doesn't become too unimportant. It's meant to point to God. This balances us. And so to understand marriage, I think what we need to do is understand God's glory. What exactly is it that we're talking about when we say one of these words that we kick around quite a bit, but maybe don't always define or contemplate as well as we should? That's, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about God's glory, and I want to talk about how marriage is meant to show God's glory, why it often doesn't, right? Because maybe that's your immediate impulse. It's like, cool. That never happens. Um, But then how it can be redeemed. Here's how we'll organize our time. As we've been doing throughout this study, we'll look at the design, the distortion, and then the healing. So the design of God's glory, the distortion of God's glory, and then thirdly, the healing of God's glory. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, um, I, you know, I, gosh, my, my mind often just goes, to fear and worry when it comes to preaching and teaching your word rightly. Um, a preoccupation with how I will be received or misunderstood or something like that. So I pray that you would bring peace to my own heart and mind uh, in this moment. I also pray the impulse um, when we hear about marriage is to think about our own, is to think about maybe our parents or relatives or friends' marriage, our lack of being married and desire to be um, our attention goes to a lot of human beings. Um, And so I pray that in this time, would you help us to rightly look at you, to behold you, your character, your nature, so that then we can look back on marriage and perceive the truth and beauty that you're trying to communicate to us through that. And so I pray that you would embolden us. I pray that uh, spirit of defensiveness, Father, that you'd protect us from, um, and that we would just hear from you, our Heavenly Father, and that we would know what your voice sounds like. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that we've uh, learned to do as a society is split subjective and objective. So subjectivity and objectivity. In other words, that subjectivity is all about beauty and no truth. And objectivity is all about truth and no beauty. And so when we come to a book of the Bible like this, like the Song of Songs, which is a poem, a work of art, we can presume that the best we can capture from this, that what we have probably learned, maybe unwittingly, is that the best we can see from this is one couple's love story, one couple's perspective, one couple's journey, and isn't that good for them, but no universal truth. And perhaps you've been wrestling with that through this series. This is a poem. This is not an epistle. These are not doctrines. This is just two people in love having sex a lot and enjoying that, but that's it. There's nothing that we should extrapolate from this. In, in other words, we see one married couple, but it doesn't show us God's glory. Maybe it just shows us their glory, their most important relationship. However, priest and poet Malcolm Guy challenges this presumption. And I thought he did so beautifully recently when he was talking to the Trinity Forum. Uh, Guy had explained that Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And somewhere in there, Geitz says, all of those alls is all of your imagination. And in fact, when we look at the teachings of Jesus, it's mostly an appeal to the imagination as a way of perceiving truth in a fresh way. He says Jesus tells stories and parables. See, Jesus was speaking truth, but he was doing it through beauty. He was speaking about glory, if you will, through stories. See, Song of Songs does this too. The whole from beginning to end. And a theme now emerges as we come to chapter 6, as the couple continues to indulge and grow in their married life, that I think speaks to this. Look at Song of Songs, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that you may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So the theme that keeps showing up is one of tension. It's sort of a back and forth, if you will, between belonging and searching. While the community is asking the bride, where's your beloved? Where did he go, right? And she's like, I am my beloved. This is a fantastic answer, right? I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. So there's this searching that persists, but belonging also endures. Do you notice that? And this isn't the first time. This has been going on the entire time. Remember, the woman was searching for the man through the wilderness, and then she goes through the city in chapter 1, chapter 3, and then in chapter 5. And then the man even describes her as a locked garden closed off, and in each case, the search is not eased until the other allows themselves to be found. It's never a tearing down of doors. It's always a disclosure. It's always a revelation, if you will. What do we learn then? Self-giving is the essence of belonging and marriage. This teaches us about God's glory. That's the essence of God's glory. It's a divine self-giving. How do we know this? Well, God is unknowable. We may search for God, but he's never discovered through research, through effort, or desire. Have you ever noticed this? You could work really hard, read all the commentaries, read all of the books, read it from beginning to end, and still walk away going, what was that about? What is God like? I don't understand fully. You could read the same passage that somebody else reads, and it just not come to you. You just don't see it. You don't understand it. You don't comprehend it. What we understand then This is teaching us something about God, that much like the bride, he is this empty city, a locked garden, if you will, closed to our minds and imaginations. King David even wrote a song about it because he was always angsty like this, wasn't he? He sang this song, great is the Lord. His greatness, hear this, is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. He also said in Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Now, why is this true? Because God is everything we're not. He's infinite, we're finite. He's flawless, we're flawed. He's whole, we're fractured. He's unknowable, and a lot of times we can read each other like books, can't we? We Know exactly what's going on with you. See, he's unknowable unless, like in the Song of Songs, he makes himself known. Unless he allows himself to be found, to be open. You see, he can only be understood as if he reveals himself or he gives himself to us. That's the design of glory. Pastor John Piper has famously defined God's glory as the visible display of God's worth and beauty. The visible display of God's worth and beauty. See, if God's nature and character are made known, if that happens, what we have experienced is a work, a mysterious and miraculous work of God, a cosmic self-disclosure, if you will. It's his grace. Paul tells Corinth that God is a God who makes himself known. He says, what eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man, imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, he says, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Spirit knows everything about God, and by God's grace, the Spirit reveals things about God to His people through relationship. Through relationship, God displays what cannot be otherwise seen. The prophet Isaiah envisioned these angels overwhelmed as they surrounded God and they shouted back and forth all the day long, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is what? Filled with his glory. It's full of it. As creator, then he has stamped his nature and character everywhere. In other words, hear this. The God who is unknowable is like, this is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. We couldn't know. Then we see a waterfall and you're like, there's something about that. You get to Lake Michigan, and you're like, nope, that is an ocean. That is not a lake. That something else is too vast. You have an interaction with somebody that reveals something. You're like, something is going on. And this is the creator who has stamped his likeness, his image, his nature and character all around us. And what the scriptures teach us is that this is particularly true with marriage. See, throughout the Bible, we learn the truth about God through the beauty of marriage— we do this in four particular ways as we move through the story of the Bible. And first, we see that God shows us his oneness. God shows us his oneness at creation through marriage. See, the story of Genesis finds its crescendo when Adam and Eve come together. Genesis chapter 2. We've looked at this a couple of times during the series. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God's telling us something about marriage, but He is telling us more about himself. He's telling us something about marriage, but he's telling us more about himself. He's revealing his nature. You see, the term for one there in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 2 is the exact same word employed in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Shema, something that Jewish people quote and recite every single day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Theologian James Hamilton explains that the transcendent reality that God exists as Trinity, as one God who is three persons, persons, is embodied in a profound way when two of God's image bearers, a man and a woman, are united to become one flesh in the holy covenant of marriage. The glory of God, His oneness, is uniquely revealed through marriage from the very beginning in creation. But God also shows us his faithfulness through history, through the language of marriage. God institutes the nation of Israel as his covenant people. And when he talks about their relationship, it sounds a lot like marriage. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So God is vowing his fidelity, much like a bride and groom vow their faithfulness to one another on their wedding day. And when Israel is not faithful, the language of betrayal is the language of adultery, of the language of marriage. Because there's sin and idolatry, God said to Israel, she's not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. That's wild. That's wild. It's provocative. He's communicating through the most egregious marital sin what, his, what the sin and the idolatry of Israel looks like to him. See, sin and idolatry are described as marital unfaithfulness. God takes on the identity as a husband even, which gives us a lot of hope if we pay attention because none of us, individually or collectively, is a spotless bride. See, he talks about his faithfulness And so we could ask ourselves, what addiction are you carrying? What pain or shame has your body absorbed? What hatred festers in your heart? What arrogance, greed, selfishness dwells in you? What faithlessness and disbelief? Take heart. The entire Bible is saying God is like a faithful spouse. He is persistent. He is kind. He is forgiving. Despite humanity's faithlessness, God persists as a devoted spouse to his bride. See, this is revealed through the glory of marriage. God shows us also his love through the cross, through the language or the lens of marriage. When Paul shapes the marital imagination, if you will, of the Ephesian church, he points them to the cross of Christ. Specifically, he connects Christ's sacrificial love for the church. Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Paul draws this straight line, if you will, back to creation and calls marriage a mystery that refers to Christ and the church. The point of marriage is to point to Christ and the church. So on the cross, Jesus gives himself wholly and completely, even though Jesus in eternity past was with his Father and Spirit, unknowable, untouchable, unkillable, and yet he shows his great love for us like a husband. For his wife, he leaves his father in heaven and holds fast to his bride by giving himself for her on the cross. See, the glory of God's love is uniquely revealed through the lens of marriage. Fourthly, God shows us his joy through the celebration of marriage. John, who wrote Revelation, has this vision that he describes the return of Christ like a wedding party, Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So Jesus is the lamb who was slaughtered for the feast and also came back to life to enjoy the feast with his people. And we are the bride, the people of God in all times and all places who have been made whole, complete. You notice what he says? He made, he's made ready, forgiven. See, part of the celebration is about even heaven and earth, being joined together in the same way like a husband and a wife are joined. Revelation 21, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Christ joyfully receives his ready people. Heaven joyfully comes down to earth to... Um, this new reality, this new home, this new oneness. God is joyful, and he is especially glad to see his creation being made very good again, or shalom being restored. And all of that is done through the language, the motif, the metaphor, if you will, of marriage. That's the design. We got we, we to we see this because there's so many other designs out there or, or at least attempts to say this is what marriage ought to look like, from beginning to end, this is overwhelming. From creation, throughout history, to the cross, to the age to come, throughout all of that, the Father is saying, just like a marriage, we're going to be one. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be faithful. We're going to be joyful. We are going to be whole together. See, marriage shows us God's oneness, faithfulness, love, and joy, beauty which tells us the truth. So, if you want to know what your marriage is meant to be about, or any marriage in particular, it's supposed to tell the truth to the world about who God is. It's supposed to tell the truth about Him. That's the purpose of marriage, to make God known. It's for His glory. However, we've distorted this, haven't we? That's because the first thing that we distort is God's glory. See, in the Song of Songs, we're given a window into this distortion, and it's pretty alarming. So if you've moved around with me a little bit, back to Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 4. Here is the groom, has another one of these descriptions for us of his bride. You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, among, uh, awesome rather, as any army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have... Come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her, who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Now, this might seem like just another description that the groom has done before, and we'll do, I think, once or twice more if my recollection serves me. Uh, but back in chapter 4 was most recent. But there's something different here. There's, in fact, two things that are different about the way he describes his bride here. First, there's development. Development. There's maturity. There's a seasonedness to what he is saying, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But the second thing, the second nuance, if you will, of this description is this comparison. Now, I have not been married that long, but I know it does not go well to compare my wife to anything, to anyone, or certainly not to a harem. So this deserves our attention, even though he's like, there's a bunch of people, but you're the only one, boo, like you're the only one. Did you hear that? It's not going to go well, so I would just suggest to you that not all of Scripture is copy-paste-apply. We need to be thoughtful about what we are reading here. See, this comparison exposes one of the most problematic issues of the Song of Songs. In fact, some of you have been angsty about this for two months. You did, you know, you read the syllabus before we started, and you were reading this, and you're just going, heck no, techno, I am not going through this particular book of the Bible. See, many of you have been wondering, and I promised that we would answer it, so here we go. Notice that the man seemingly compares his wife to a harem, or a polycule, if you will, right? Look again at verse 8. There are 60 queens, 80 concubines, and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. Long story short, the commentators think King Solomon, who wrote this book may have written it about himself or he may not have, may have written it about himself and his wife, or rather one of his wives, right? So that's a question we have to ask. Others think that Solomon wrote this song, but it's not autobiographical. In fact, that it may even be another couple or a fictional couple that he's writing about. Others still believe there's no way Solomon could have written this because he had no integrity to be writing something like this, right? There's no way this dude could talk about a monogamous marriage while he has, you know, this, you know. So, candidly... um, To be honest with you, I have gone back and forth as to which one of those I think is probably the most profitable and most helpful and historically accurate renderings of the authorship of Song of Songs and the nature of which he is writing. So I'm going back and forth. So if you feel like you're going back and forth, I'm with you in that. See, much of this debate, though, swirls around this verse because it's here that this ancient distortion of marriage in God's glory is revealed. Why? Because while which is always meant and has always been meant to reveal God's glory, it's often the very place that we chase our own glory. It's often the very place that we chase our own glory. Now, I want to give you a heads up, because I'm me and you're you. We cannot just look at this intellectually. We have to look at it spiritually. In other words, I would love to hold Solomon up and judge him without judging me. We can't do that. The scriptures never let us do that. So as we consider his life, we have to consider our own. See, this was particularly problematic. This idea of chasing our own glory through marriage it was particularly problematic for men in the ancient world, particularly for those in power, and particularly kings. And so when Israel demanded a king, because you know God did not institute, he did not want it this way. He was always meant to be their king. But they said, Give us a king. Why? Because we want to be like other nations. This happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He said, All right, I'll give you a king, but I'm going to lay out some rules, some guidelines, if you will. And in Deuteronomy, we get a good picture of those. Deuteronomy 17. God says only he that's the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said you shall never return that way again and he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold so kings weren't supposed to collect horses wives and gold what's that about well, these are the age old issues, these are the age old gods of this world, if you will, money, sex, and power. He's not supposed to chase after those things. And notice that the reason God doesn't want his kings to accumulate is lest his heart turn away. It will distort him. It will distort their vision and understanding about themselves and gods. And a God, rather. A king then who acquires is a king who is about his glory and not the glory of God. A king who acquires, a person who acquires, and who accumulates. Jesus teaches about this in the Sermon on the Mount as well, right? We are not to accumulate for our own glory. You see, in the ancient world, the more horses you had, the more fierce you seemed to everybody else. The more wives you had, the more desirable you thought you seemed to everyone else. And the more gold, the more money you had, the more limitless you appeared to everybody else. In other words, what? It's all about you. It's all about your glory. It's all about telling the world who you are. This is why God didn't want them to do that. See, each was about revealing self to the world and not God. Fast forward to King Solomon. Like his father, King number two, and number one, he acquired all these things. 2 Samuel chapter 12 teaches us this, including many wives. Solomon, 1 Kings 11, had 700 wives and were princes, and who were princes, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So the quick answer to the nature of Solomon's character, and perhaps the nature of the authorship of Song of Songs, is that Solomon sinned against God in his marriage solomon sinned against god in his marriage or rather perhaps more accurately in his marriage is and it didn't go well so one of one of the ways to read scripture is to go okay solomon is sinning and not doing how does this end up for him it doesn't end up going well and so this is a story a cautionary tale for us solomon was about god's or rather his glory rather than god's glory israel wanted a king because they wanted to be like other nations they wanted a way to seek their own glory to rise above all of these other nations. And so they shouldn't be surprised that the role that they desired to be about their glory, he became all about his own glory. A brief aside, in a celebrity age, whether it be in the religious culture or in the prevailing social environment that we are in, we need to be very careful to trust people to give us something that they're not going to take for themselves. This is what the scriptures teach us, that when we center a person, they will center themselves. The same is true for you and me. It may not be polyamory, it may not be polygamy, yet whether we're married or not, in our sin we are tempted to make marriage about our own glory rather than the glory of God. That's the distortion. See, theologian Christopher Ashe observes that the mandate of the first married couple was to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, right? This is actually the reason that Eve is created as a co partner, a, a helper, if you will. It was to be a task oriented covenant, a task oriented covenant and couple meant to embrace God's desires, to fulfill His will, and to achieve His glory, being central in all things. Yet at the fall, the first couple becomes preoccupied with what? themselves. They immediately look at themselves Oh no, we're naked, let's hide. And they separate. So the couple that was meant to be task-oriented all of a sudden became self-conscious. The shift from then task-oriented covenant to a couple-focused marriage is a product of the fall. Ash explains that unbridled relational primacy is not only wrong, it is also foolish. In other words, to make your marriage about your marriage is foolish. The couple working at the project of coupledom, Ash continues, for its own sake, face the problem that introspection is stifling and self-destructive. It's the Greek story of Narcissus, who was so preoccupied with looking at himself in the pool of water, he dies. We often do this in our marriages, don't we? So concerned about fulfilling our own needs from the other, we put so much pressure on the other and so much pressure on ourselves that it destroys both of us. See, when self-actualization becomes the goal of marriage, we end marriages for the very same logic that we begin them, our own glory. That's the distortion. The distortion is so damaging because the man-woman relationship can't stand the weight of making you your best self. It can't stand the weight of doing that. And yes, the same is true of a man in a multiple-woman relationship. It's okay to want to become better, to grow, to mature, to be whole, and reach your full potential. This is one of the reasons C.S. Lewis explained that real intimacy, a real friendship, wasn't about what we see in one another, but actually what we agree about together on the horizon. He put it this way in The Four Loves. He says, Friendship arises when two or more discover that they have in common some insight or interest. Friendship must be about something. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Another writer says friendship happens when someone says, really, you too? You see that too? I'm down. I see that too. I thought I was the only one. That's friendship. That's marriage. That's a task-oriented marriage. That's a marriage focused not on itself, but on the glory of God. So, if we're trapped in a pursuit of our own glory in polyamory or polygamy, or simply expecting marriage to complete us and make us whole, to be our healer, to be our lover, to be our best friend, to be our everything, right? How are we to reorient ourselves around the glory of God? How are we healed? Well, we spoke about two differences in the man's description. The second was comparison, which we've explored, and the, the, the first was a development. See, one of the primary things we notice is a shift in metaphors here in Song of Songs 6. See, the woman was a locked garden, but now she's a city and she's armies. (laughs) This is brilliant. She's different. He's different. She has become something different, and he's become more observant. He sees a depth to her that he did not see before, a transformation in her that was not there before. And therefore, the illustrations change. The garden, you'll see, is blooming. It's blossoming. It's growing in this final scene. Look at verse 11. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set among the chariots of my kinsmen, a, a prince. Return or turn, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? There's transformation. The tran- their transformation doesn't change their seeking and finding, though. They, they continue searching for one another, but the seeking and the finding, they're more open, they're playful, they're permissive. Fear is thinner, joy is fuller. There's respect, there's dignity, there's openness, there's permission, there's blossoming. See, marriage is changing them. It's growing, it's maturing them. Marriage always changes us. See, God's glory does the same thing too. It's always transforming us. See, one of the myths of marriage is that we always marry the right person. And that's like the pursuit. I just want to be Mr. Right. I want to find Mrs. Right. We just want to be right. We want to be the right one. You never marry the right person ever. In truth, we're always marrying the wrong person. We're always marrying a person, in other words, who's in process. You thought you knew who they were when you made those promises, and literally the next day you're like, Oh shoot, did not know that about you. That's interesting. That's interesting. Let alone 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Ethicist Lewis Schmid uh, observed, after 25 years of marriage, he says, My wife has been uh, rather my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each one of the five has been me. Each one of the five has been me. How does this happen? Well, seeking God, seeking his glory changes us. In seeking the Lord, we don't become our best selves in our own concept, and we don't become our best marriage, more and more twitterpated with one another. What do we become? More like Christ. You become more like him. Marcia McLuhan famously said, we become what we behold. Whatever you are beholding, whatever you are looking at, that is the thing that is transforming you. See, the question is not, are you transforming? Are you changing? It's, what are you becoming more like? What is transforming you? What is changing you? What are you beholding? What are we asking those around us to behold? See, seeking our own glory does change us, but it always frustrates and disappoints and dissatisfies us. Seeking God's glory makes us whole and it heals us. This is the point that Paul is bringing up in Ephesians chapter 5, the crescendo, if you will, of this great theme of the scriptures of marriage being the primary illustration of the gospel. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the question is not, is your marriage awesome? Are you awesome? Is every marriage you've ever seen awesome? The question is, what are we beholding and how is that making us clean? How is that growing us? How is that nurturing us? See, the connection between marriage and the gospel isn't simply union, it's transformation. The glory of God transforms us. So back to the question. You might have been like, you never answered the question. What is verse eight and nine all about? Is it Solomon? And if it is, is he being hypocritical? And why would we take these words of monogamy from someone who was anything but monogamous. Well, if this is Solomon, I think we can receive his words from a man who is in process. In a very dark place, for sure. We can accept his words as inspired, beautiful, and truthful, even if he's not. Even if he is broken. Though many see Ecclesiastes as Solomon's sort of repentant moment, which comes after writing the Song of Songs, the same is true of nearly every biblical author in the scriptures. Paul was a murderer. He particularly killed Christians. Can you imagine the first people that received Paul's letter? Right? Well, not too sure this is a trustworthy source. <laughs> Maybe we should do some vetting first. Peter was a betrayer. He wrote first and second Peter, right? There would be some tension. Like, isn't this the one who denied Christ? So, why would we take him telling us to believe in Christ as a really good idea? David wrote about sorrow and vulnerability, and throughout his kingship, he constantly was taking taking advantage of the weak. I think what we learn is that every writer makes us long for a better author, every voice makes us long for a true and better messenger, every single spouse. Husbands and wives will make you long for a better lover. Every single person throughout all of history is not vaunted up to us as great examples for us to follow. They are vaunted us to us as this wonderful tapestry of those whom God has been gracious, those whom God has used, those whom God has loved, those whom God has been faithful, those to whom God has been kind. See, after all, Marriage is really meaningful, but the scriptures are clear. It's also momentary. That means one day we won't need this metaphor anymore. Why? Because we will be with the Lord, and he will be with us. Every whisper of beauty is meant to point us to this truth, to the only one who brings you lasting oneness, faithfulness, love, and joy. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the beauty of this text. Thank you for the beautiful truth that your whole word, the whole counsel of your scriptures tells us that whatever is lacking will be made whole. Whatever is broken will be healed. Whatever is sad will be made untrue. And so in that already but not yet moment, whether we desire marriage and are not married yet, whether we are married and wish that we weren't, married happily, married with confusion, on the other side of divorce, on the other side of being a widow or a widower, in all of the various places that you find us in our own journey in relating to this institution of marriage, would you help us to behold your glory? Where we have not been good wives and husbands, would you help us to seek forgiveness and wholeness through the great bridegroom, Jesus Christ? Where we have been hurt in relationships, in bad marriages, would you help us to find peace, assurance in the faithfulness of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ? Where we have unmet longings and desires and angst and even anger would you calm the storms of our heart through the word of the great bridegroom Jesus Christ and would you help us as a people to know what it is to be the bride to know what it is to be a people who are being made spotless who are being cleansed who are being washed who are being made more and more not like our best selves but more and more like Christ would that be so so that the world would know the truth, the beauty, the glory of you, our God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.